The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Welcome to the Man of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is Tom Sullivan, the voice of the narrated Puritan. Last week when I commenced a reading from the three volumes of Abraham Booth called Paedo-Baptism Examined, I mentioned that they are currently in print from Particular Baptist Press. That was an error, though the Particular Baptist Press in Missouri is said to be working on their own edition. The one that I had in my hand was from the Baptist Standard Bearer Publications in Arizona. But I wasn't reading from that. I had a first edition that I had downloaded to my Kindle. But before I read from another volume in the three-volume edition, I need to define the term positive sovereign institution. And I'll do so from a website called thecalvinist.net. And the web editor is Simon Wartanian. And I know some of you know this young man, and I think he's very helpful here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ordinances or sacraments which the Lord Jesus, by sovereign authority, instituted and commanded us to observe. Now, what does the word positive mean in a sentence? Positive and sovereign institution. Does it mean something that is happy and good over against something negative or bad? No, that is not the contextual meaning of the word. Rather, by positive institution or positive command. The confession means an institution or a command that is not inherently moral. A person who has not read the Bible or heard of the God of the Bible still knows that murder is wrong and lying is bad. But can it be argued that they know that not being baptized is sin and not partaking of the Lord's Supper is sin? Obviously not. So these things just like the command of Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 in the garden, are things which are not inherently moral, but become moral when God commands them. They are things that are good because commanded, in contrast to pure moral laws that are commanded because they are good. The Lord Christ, by his own power and authority, established two ordinances for the new covenant people of God. Now, in opening up Abraham Booth's book, Beto Baptism Examined, Concerning the nature, obligation, and importance of positive institutions in religion, all of the quotes here are by Paedo-Baptists, and most of them are correct. But it is the application of their definition to Paedo-Baptism that Abraham Booth shows is inconsistent. As we stated last week, after he quotes the Paedo-Baptist arguments or definitions, he writes his reflections on that to show the inconsistency of what they are saying. So with that, we'll begin. The first author he quotes is Philip Doddridge. You may know him from the book, The Rise and Progress of Religion and the Soul. Those are called positive institutions or precepts which are not founded upon any reasons known to those to whom they are given or discoverable by them, but which are observed merely because some superior has commanded them in quote lectures Definitions, 71, page 238. Dr. Fidesz, quote, 
The distinction between positive law and moral law is founded in this difference. The subject matter of positive law is something to which we are antecedently under no obligation and which only obliges by virtue of its being enacted, and perhaps to a certain limited period. The subject matter of a moral law is, on the other hand, something antecedently in a visible reason of it, obligatory to us, and the obligation thereof will always continue unchangeably the same. By a positive command, I understand an express declaration made by competent authority, whether concerning things to be done or to be omitted. John Owen, quote, Positive institutions are the free effects of the will of God, depending originally and solely on revelation, and which therefore have been various and actually changed. End quote. Discourse concerning the Holy Spirit, Book 1, Chapter 3. Budaeus, quote, the obligation by which men are bound rightly to use positive appointments is to be derived from the moral law itself, by which it is manifest that men are obliged to do all those things by which their eternal felicity may be promoted. God had the wisest reasons why he would have an appointment administered in this or the other manner. It is not lawful, therefore, for men to alter anything or to mutilate the appointment Thus the sacraments are to be used not according to our own pleasure, but in a manner appointed by God, institution, theological, and moral. Just a footnote here, if I cannot give the full reference to where these quotes are taken, it's because Abraham Booth had shortened them, and I may not be aware of the original. In the case of John Owen, I am. Quoting Jonathan Edwards, those laws whose obligation arises from the nature of things and from the general state and nature of mankind, as well as from God's positive revealed will, are called moral laws. Others, whose obligation depends merely upon God's positive and arbitrary institution, are not moral, such as the ceremonial laws and the precepts of the gospel about the two sacraments. Positive precepts are the greatest and most proper trial of obedience, because in them the mere authority and will of the legislator is the sole ground of the obligation, and nothing in the nature of the things themselves, and therefore they are the greatest trial of any person's respect to that authority and will. In quote, sermons, page 232, Hartford, 1780, Bishop Burnett, quote, Sacraments are positive precepts which are to be measured only by the institution in which there is not room left for us to carry them any further, end quote. Exposition of the 39 Articles, Article 27, page 279, 5th edition. Richard Steele, quote, Sacraments depend merely upon their institution, hence doth their being result, and upon this their manner and signification do depend. The institution with the element, makes a sacrament, and so the only rule and balance for them must needs be their institution, In quote, Puritan Morning Exercises Against Popery, Sermon 27, pages 764 and 765. Step for us, quote, visible signs are the manner of sacraments. Signs are either natural or arbitrary. Sacred ceremonies are of the latter kind, but ever an arbitrary sign be, it is such by institution, in quote. Dr. Goodman, the term institution implies a setting up de novo, or the appointing that to become a duty which was not knowable, or at least not known to be so, 
before it became so appointed. For this word institution is that which we use to express a positive command by, in opposition to that which is moral in the strictest sense, and of natural obligation. Now it is very evident that all things of this nature ought to be appointed very plainly and expressly, or else they can carry no obligation with them. For seeing the whole reason of their becoming matter of law or duty lies in the will of the legislator. If that be not plainly discovered, it cannot be said to be instituted, and so there can be no obligation to observe them, because where there is no law, there can be no transgression, and a law is no law in effect which is not sufficiently promulgated. In quote, Preservations Against Popery, Title 8, page 7. Dr. Sherlock, what is manner of institution depends wholly upon the divine will and pleasure. And though all men will grant that God and Christ have always great reason for their institution, it is not the reason but the authority which makes the institution. Though we do not understand the reasons of the institution, if we see the command, we must obey. And though we could fancy a great many reasons why there should be such an institution, if no such institution appears, we are free in not to believe there is such an institution, because we think there are reasons to be assigned why it should be, in quote. Preservations Against Popery, Title 9, page 419. Now, there are numerous other quotes that Abraham Booth gives but so as not to lose the listeners of the podcast, I want to go to his reflections. And these are the deductions from the many quotes that he has previously given by the Pado-Baptists. Reflection 1. By this learned and respectable body of Pado-Baptists, we are taught that positive institutions originate entirely in the sovereign will of God, that positive laws must be plain and expressed, that the obligation to observe them arises not from the goodness of the things themselves, but from the authority of God, that they are determined by divine institution as to their matter, manner, and signification, that they admit of no commutation, mutilation, or alteration by human authority, that they depend entirely on divine institution and are to be regulated by it, that we ought not to conclude that God has appointed such a right for such a purpose because we imagine ourselves to stand in need of it, and that there are sufficient reasons for it. Now footnote, in each of these statements they are taken from the quotes of the Pado-Baptists that he had previously quoted, but I continue, that our obligation to observe them does not result from our seeing the reasons of them, but from the command of God and that his positive command is enforced by the moral law, that there are no accidental parts of a positive institution, that it is unlawful to conform to any part of a religious right without a divine warrant, that it is at our peril to continue ignorant to the will of God relating to his positive appointments, that it is great presumption to make light of them, that it is physician to obey God and his positive institutes as part of that holiness without which none shall see the Lord, and that external rights are of little worth detached from virtuous tempers. Such are the declared sentiments of these respectable authors concerning positive institutions. Reflection 2. As it seems to be the unanimous and well-attested opinion of these learned pedobaptists, the positive institutions derive their whole being from the sovereign pleasure of God, so his revealed will must have given them their existence under every dispensation of true religion. Consequently, we cannot know anything about their precise nature, their true design, the proper subjects of them, 
or the right mode of their administration further than the scriptures teach. For they are to be measured only by the institution in which there is not room left for us to carry them any further, end quote. It follows, therefore, from the nature of the case, that positive ordinances must be entirely under the direction of positive precepts or of examples in Scripture that are warranted by the Holy Spirit. For, as Dr. Goodwin observes, quote, There is this difference between doctrinal truths and institutions, that one truth may be, by reason, better fetched out of another, and more safely and easily than institutions, for one truth begets another. And truth is infinite in the consequences of it, but so institutions are not. And the reason of the difference is this, because they depend upon a promise and upon the power and will of God immediately to concur with them and set them up. They are things that are singled out by the will of God to a spiritual end with a spiritual efficacy. We may be assured what is an institution of God by examples which we meet with in the scriptures. For one way by which Christ was pleased to convey his institutions to us is by way of examples in the New Testament, without the which being intended as a rule for us. We acknowledge that a complete rule for all things could not be made forth. If an example be written as a rule, then it will bind because there is no supposition of error. End quote. Thomas Goodwin, Collected Works, Volume 4, The Government of the Church of Christ, Chapter 4, Pages 21 and 22. Remarkably strong to our purpose is the language of Dr. Sherlock, who speaks as follows, I would not be thought holy to reject a plain and evident consequence from Scripture, but yet I will never admit of a mere consequence to prove an institution, which must be delivered in plain terms, as all laws ought to be. And where I have no other proof but some scripture consequences, I shall not think it equivalent to a scripture proof. If the consequence be plain and obvious, and such as every man sees, I shall not question it. But remote and dubious and disputed consequences, if we have no better evidence to be sure, are a very ill foundation for articles of faith or ordinances of worship. Let our Protestant then tell such disputants that for the institution of sacraments and for articles of faith, he explained plain positive proofs that, as much as the Protestant faith is charged with uncertainty, we desire a little more certainty for our faith than mere inferences from Scripture, and those none of the plainest neither." Quote. Preservations Against Popery, Volume 2, Appendix, page 23. With Dr. Sherlock, Peter Martyr agrees when he says, quote, It is necessary that we should have clear testimony from the Holy Scriptures concerning sacraments, end quote. It seems indeed to be the general practice of all Protestants, when contending with Roman Catholics, about their claims of prerogative and their numerous rights to proceed on this principle, nothing short of an explicit grant, a positive command, or a plain example in the New Testament can prove their divine origin. Is the debate concerning papal supremacy or infallibility? No reasonings from remote principles. No conclusions from far-fetched consequences are allowed. The honors in dispute being such as depend entirely on the sovereign pleasure and special donation of God is an explicit divine grant of these prerogatives loudly demanded. Are five of the seven sacraments, the ceremonies performed by them, when administering baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
They're withholding the cup from the people and other things of a similar kind as subjects in debate. Protestants hardly ever fail to require a direct proof, a positive precept, or a plain example from the New Testament. All arguments drawn from ancient Jewish rites, all that are formed on general principles or moral considerations, and all endeavors to produce inferential proof are justly discarded as incompetent, as having nothing to do with the subject. For the subject being no other than the ritual part of that worship which God requires under the New Testament, a divine institution of the rites in question, a plain positive order or an apostolic example may well be required before they have a place in our creed or become a part of our solemn service. If therefore the New Testament says nothing about the institution or the practice of such rites, we have nothing to do with them, nor anything to believe concerning them. On the same principle, Protestant dissenters proceed when defending nonconformity, using many of the same arguments against their Episcopalian opponents, which those Episcopalians employ when vindicating their own succession from the Church of Rome. Again, these are deductions that Abraham Booth is making from their own definitions and writings of positive institutions. The demand of nonconformists upon their Episcopalian brethren is, Produce your warrant for this, that, and the other. From our only rule of faith and practice, a divine precept, or an apostolic example relating to the point in dispute. So important is this principle respecting everything of a positive nature in Christianity that I can hardly imagine any sensible Protestant would ever think of writing against a popish system or any conscientious dissenter of justifying his nonconformity without availing himself of it in many cases. Nay, so obvious and so important is this principle. So congenial to that grand maxim, the Bible only is a religion of Protestants, that we might well wonder if a judicious author omitted it when handling the doctrine of positive rights, except it appeared that he labored to establish some hypothesis to which this principle is inimical. Nor does it appear from the records of the Old Testament that when Jehovah appointed any branch of ritual worship, he left either the subjects of it or the mode of administration to be inferred by the people, from the relation in which they stood to himself, or from general moral precepts, or from any branch of his moral worship, nor yet from any other well-known positive right. But he gave them special directions relating to the very case, and those directions they were bound to regard whether they appeared in a pleasing or a painful in a decent or a disgusting light. For as nothing but the divine will can oblige the conscience, and as that will cannot be known unless revealed, so when made known whether in reference to moral or positive duties, it must oblige. We are bound therefore to regard the divine laws, not so much on account of what they are in themselves, however excellent, as because they are the will of him whose claim of obedience is prior to every other consideration. Consequently, seeing baptism is as really and entirely a positive institution as any that were given to the chosen tribes, we cannot with safety infer either the mode or the subject of it from anything short of a precept or a precedent recorded in scripture and relating to that very ordinance, that the laws of positive worship under the Old Testament were particular, clear, and decisive will not be denied. 
and that our Lord has furnished a gospel church with as complete a rubric of solemn service in the New Testament as that recorded by Moses in the Pentateuch, our paedo-baptist brethren will assert. Thus, John Owen, for instance, quote, All things concerning the worship of God in the whole church or house, now under the gospel, are no less perfectly and completely ordered and ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ than they were by Moses under the law. End quote. On Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, volume 2, page 26. Isaac Chauncey, quote, Christ has been more faithful than Moses and therefore has not left his churches without sufficient rules to walk by, end quote. Preface to Dr. Owen's True Nature of a Gospel Church. Thomas Ridgely, quote, It is a great dishonor to Christ, the king and head of his church, to suppose that he has left it without a role to direct them in what respects the communion of saints, as much as it would be to assert that he has left it without a rule of faith. If God was so particular in giving directions concerning every part of that worship that was to be performed in the church before Christ's coming, so that they were not, on pain of his highest displeasure, to deviate from it, certainly we must not think that our Savior has neglected neglected to give those laws by which the gospel church is to be governed, in quote, body of divinity. Question 61 and 64. The Puritan Edward Polehill, quote, Christ was as faithful in the house of God as Moses. His provision was as perfect for rituals as that of Moses was, in quote. Discourse on Schism, page 66. Reflection 3. It seems natural hence to infer. Abraham Booth, Reflections in a manner proportional to its obligation and importance. 4. As an appointment of Christ, it originated in His will, and from a revelation of that will, the whole of its obligation results. In proportion, therefore, as we annex the idea of obscurity to what He says about the mode and subject of it, we either sink the idea of obligation to regard it, or impeach the wisdom, the goodness, or the equity of our divine legislator. For we neither have, nor can we have any acquaintance with a positive institution further than it is revealed. And a natural incapacity will always excuse the non-performance of what would otherwise be an indispensable duty. We are therefore obliged to conclude that our Lord has clearly revealed his pleasure with reference to both his positive appointments and that code of law and rule of religious worship which are contained in the New Testament. On this point, let us hear Mr. Payne when contending with a learned and artful Beausway, Bishop of Mole. Quote, surely, says a Protestant, Pedobaptist, so wise a lawgiver as our blessed Savior would not give a law to all Christians that was not easy to be understood by them. It cannot be said without great reflection upon his infinite wisdom that his laws are so obscure and dark as they are delivered by himself and as they are necessary to be observed by us that we cannot know the meaning of them without a further explication. God's laws may be very fairly explained away if they are left wholly to the mercy of men to explain them, in quote, Preservations Against Popery, Title 7, page 147. Agreeable to this is the language of Mr. Archbishop Hall when he says, The appointments of the deity concerning his worship are not to be gathered from the uncertain tradition of the elders and authority of men or the dictates of our own reason. No, they stand engrossed in the volume of his book, which is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him, in quote. Gospel Worship, Volume 1, page 30. 
J.A. Turretinus tells us, quote, that whatever of importance the scripture delivers concerning the sacraments may be included in a few pages, nay, perhaps in a few lines, and that so as a little child may understand it, in quote. Examinations on the Council of Trident, pages 204 and 285. Abraham Booth reflects on this. It is, I think, worthy of remark that though Protestant authors in general consider the meaning of the law of Christ relating to his Last Supper as being evident beyond all reasonable doubt, and though they severely censor the Roman Catholics for insinuating the contrary, yet with regard to the law of baptism, they frequently represent its meaning as ambiguous and embarrassed nay, is favoring opposite practices, so that whether an infant or one professing faith be sprinkled or immersed, the whole design of the law may be fulfilled and the divine blessing on the administration expected. But whether this be consistent or scriptural is left with the reader. Reflection 4. That no addition should be made by human authority to the positive appointments of Jesus Christ, and that it is not lawful under any pretense either to corrupt or depart from the primitive institution of those appointments are things generally maintained and strongly urged against the papists by Protestants of all descriptions. The following quotation may serve as a specimen of their language and sentiments in reference to these particulars. John Owen, quote, All worship is obedience. Obedience respects authority, and authority exerts itself in commands. And if the authority be not the authority of God, the worship performed in obedience to it is not the worship of God, but of him or them whose commands and authority are the reason and cause of it. It is the authority of God alone that can make any worship to be religious, or the performance of it to be an act of obedience to him. God will never allow that the will and wisdom of any of his creatures should be the rise, rule, or measure of his worship, or any part of it or anything that belongs to it. This honor he has reserved to himself, neither will he part with it to any other. He alone knows what becomes his own greatness and holiness, and what tends to the advancement of his glory. Hence, the scripture abounds with severe interdictions and commendations against them, who shall presume to do or appoint anything in his worship, besides or beyond his own institution. Divine institution alone is that which renders anything acceptable to God. All divine service or worship must be resolved into divine ordination or institution. A worship not ordained of God is not accepted of God. It is a hard and rare thing to have the minds of men kept upright with God in the observation of the institutions of divine worship. Adam lost himself and all of us by his failure in this. The Old Testament church seldom attained to it, and at this day there are very few in the world who judge a diligent observation of divine institutions to be a thing of any great importance. By some they are neglected, by some corrupted with additions of their own, and by some they are exalted above their proper place and use and turned into an occasion of neglecting more important duties. John Owen on Hebrews 1 verse 6 and chapter 9 verse 1. In chapter 8, verse 5. So Abraham Booth, reflection number 6, with regard to positive institutions, Protestant Paedobaptists further inform us that the Lord Jesus Christ is jealous of his honor, that what is not commanded need not be forbidden, and that nothing is lawful which is not a duty. The following example may here suffice. Dr. John Witherspoon, our obedience must be implicit, founded immediately on the authority of God. 
We must not take upon us to judge of the moment and importance of any part of his will, further than he hath made it known himself. It is a very dangerous thing for us to make comparisons between one duty and another, especially with a view of dispensing with any of them or altering their order and substituting one in another's place. John Owen, Christ marrying his church to himself, taking it to that relation, still expresses the main of their chaste and choice affections to him, to lie in their keeping in his institution and his worship according to his appointment. The breach of this he calls adultery everywhere and whoredom. He is a jealous God and he gives himself that title only in respect of his institutions. And the whole apostasy of the Christian church to false worship is called fornication. Revelation 17 verse 5. And a church that leads the others to false worship the mother of harlots. John Owen, Communion with God, Part 2, Chapter 5, pages 169 and 170. Reflection 7, that the subjects of positive divine laws cannot slight or neglect them without offending God, is maintained with a decisive tone by our learned Pado-Baptist brethren. Thus, for instance, Bishop Taylor, quote, the positive laws of Jesus Christ cannot be dispensed with by any human power. All laws given by Christ are now made forever to be obligatory, end quote. So Abraham Booth concludes it is therefore incumbent on every professor of Christianity to make a diligent and impartial search into the records of the New Testament, that he may know and perform the will of his Lord respecting baptism. Nor has any one reason to consider himself as possessed of a pious and virtuous temper, while destitute of a disposition to make such an inquiry. The morality of our conduct does not depend on the understanding. For our knowing or being ignorant of a thing is not the reason of its being good or evil, any more than the nature of an action does upon the will, because a willing a bad action to a good end cannot render it innocent. Divine law is a rule of our conduct, and a want of conformity to that rule is a sin. It appears, therefore, by the preceding reasoning and from the authors produced, that none are worthy the name of Christians who are destitute of a disposition to acknowledge the authority of Christ by submission to his positive appointments, and that ignorance of their nature, obligation, and use is far from excusing, except it arise from natural incapacity and not from a bad state of the will. Now, in regard to baptism, we have not only the command of our Lord, but his own example also to enforce our observation of it. As has been justly remarked by a learned Lutheran, quote, that so great an honor was never conferred upon any ceremony, end quote. Notes on Matthew 3, verse 16, as there was upon baptism when our Lord himself was immersed in Jordan by the hands of John when the Divine Father, with an audible voice, proclaimed him his beloved Son, and when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. I will conclude this part of our subject with the reasoning of Dr. Gerard. Quote, a total disregard to the positive and external duties of religion or a very great neglect of them is justly reckoned more blamable and a stronger evidence of an unprincipled character than even some transgressions of moral obligation. Even particular positive precepts, as soon as they are given by God, have something moral in their nature. Suppose a rites when sure enjoined by them, perfectly indifferent before they were enjoined, yet from that moment they cease to be indifferent. The divine authority is interposed for the observance of them. To neglect them is no longer to forbear an indifferent action, 
or to do a thing in one way rather than another, which is naturally no great propriety. It is very different. It is to disobey God. It is to despise his authority. It is to resist his will. Can any man believe that God and acknowledge that disobedience to him and contempt of his authority is immoral and far from the least heinous species of immorality? All positive institutions of divine appointment are means of cultivating moral virtue. Be the rights themselves what they will, their being enjoined by God renders them proper trials of our obedience to him, and renders our observance of them the means of cherishing a sense of his authority and of improving a principle of subjection to it. A principle or subjection of God to the authority of God is one of the firmest supports of all goodness and virtue, and positive institutions are the most direct means of cultivating it, for the observance of them proceeds solely from the principle of obedience. But in every moral virtue other principles are conjoined with this. All the rights appointed by God are likewise direct and very powerful means of improving many particular virtuous affections, all the affections which are naturally exercised in performing them. In quote, Sermons, Volume 1, pages 312 to 314, 316, 317, and 320. Abraham Booth concludes as the leading ideas in the preceding paragraphs are the grand principles of legitimate reasoning on the doctrine of positive institutions, as it is on these principles that our most eminent Protestant authors proceed when exploding the superstitions of popery, and as it is our intention to examine paedobaptism on these very principles, the readers desire to keep them in mind. While perusing the following pages, it has been justly remarked by Bishop Taylor that, quote, men are easy enough to consent to a general rule, but they will not suffer their own case to be concerned in it, end quote. This observation is doubtless founded in fact, and it expresses an affecting truth. While therefore we consider the aforementioned authors as having verified the remark by practicing infant sprinkling, we shall endeavor to avoid a similar inconsistency.